because I keep missing the army button. So um, I do actually have, as you've seen, some pretty lengthy notes for this one. So today we're going to be discussing The Hitler Myth by Ian Kershaw. Uh, Ian Kershaw is a British historian, um, perhaps best known for his expansive two-volume biography on Adolf Hitler, uh, which first appeared in the late 90s and early noughties, in the UK at least. Um, I mean, it's probably fair to say I, I read and, and or listened to the single volume edition, which still weighs in at a thousand pages, so it's pretty heavy. Um, so what's quite interesting in terms of his uh, academic CV is that he started off as a medievalist in the UK, um, and it was only really during a stint in a German university that he developed an interest in uh, modern German history, or at least uh, German history of the modern era. And then, of course, that uh, led to an interest in Adolf Hitler. And the publication we're talking about, The Hitler Myth, um, is seen as uh, a seminal publication in what is generally referred to as a, a new wave of World War II scholarship um, that emerged from Germany around the 70s, 80s periods. Um, and this uh, sort of characteristic element of this period of research was distinguished by trying to connect public opinion uh, with Hitler's policies. Uh, and this is in a large part trying to avoid the uh, previous tendency of uh, generally exonerating German public, that is to say, uh, uh, not sort of involving them at all in sort of the general sort of uh, policy or sort of execution of their policy during the Nazi period. Uh, this has the term, I just want to say it, it generally referred to in German as Alltagsgeschichte. Um, don't at me with that pronunciation. Or also another sort of interesting element in the sort of scholarship of this period was the split of opinion with regards to Hitler's uh, leadership style and his sort of general role within the government. And generally this is termed uh, as a difference between say the weak versus strong Führer uh, theses. Um, so just to characterize, so it's, it's to say that the weak is generally characterized as that Hitler was somewhat of a secondary uh, figure when it came to um, actually implementing uh, elements of his policy, whereas the strong Führer thesis is uh, the, the other side. That is to say he was quite directly involved in this. And so Kershaw uh, generally sort of come describes himself as a, a strong Führer uh, theorist. And um, it, it's really uh, this book that allows, or is, is, trying, is, is part of Kershaw's trying to sort of bring these two different elements together. And he does this using, or by introducing a framework which was uh, first introduced by Max Weber. Uh, and this is the sort of modes or sort of uh, styles of leadership or authority. And so uh, sort of taking this cue from Max Weber, uh, Ian Kershaw characterizes Hitler's or leadership as sort of a sort of prototypical example of charismatic authority. And we're gonna get into this a, a bit more, but I think I would probably define this uh, as being some, as relating to a leader, who is uh, often related to in sort of quasi-religious terminology uh, and also whose authority is uh, largely maintained and legitimized through quite dramatic uh, acts or like great acts uh, that sort of go 
into sort of feeding into this uh, general sort of aura of greatness as well. And so, yeah, so it's to say that this, this framework provided by Max Weber is what Kirchhoff uses to bring together these elements of the strong theory of thesis, uh, as well as sort of uh, understanding the importance of public opinion in sort of uh, characterizing and sort of uh, impacting the actual rollout of policy goals. And again, we're, this is something we'll come to, but uh, another example is the fact that Hitler uh, deliberately avoided referencing his policy on Lebensraum. Uh, during earlier speeches, and that was only sort of something that later he was felt able to sort of um, speak more freely about. This is also a bit my opinion. Uh, I, th I think it's fair to say as well. Um, I think this book also provides the basis of uh, a thesis. Kershaw would go on to elaborate a bit more in his uh, biography of Hitler, which is um, termed working towards the Fuhrer, uh, which is to say that Hitler's leadership style wasn't isn't best characterized as a purely sort of totalitarian style but is a bit more anarchic in that he was uh sort of partly due to his character but also somewhat deliberately he wouldn't necessarily sort of uh, define uh political goals or policy goals in very sort of strict sort of uh well-defined terms it was more just like uh, deliberately sort of left for other members of the party to sort of um, act on and sort of implement to their own understanding. Um, and I, I, th I think that also leads some credence as to why um, we see the pace of implementation of these policies take on such a dramatic character, uh, especially later in the war, because they're not so much um, directed top down from Hitler, uh, but he's just giving space for these elements within the wider party to sort of act on uh, their own initiative. Um, and also sort of further to this, we see that uh, often Hitler's underlying aims are quite different to the outcomes that actually happen. So for instance, um, Hitler was uh, widely credited for the peaceful resolution uh, during the 1938 Munich crisis, I mean, a conference, uh, but um, at least within Hitler's minds, uh, that was the undesirable sort of uh, means of actually extracting those policy wins. Uh, so before I let Simon talk, um, I think it'd be interesting just to set up a bit of the historical context with which this book was published, um, because it actually sort of illuminates, illuminates some of the elements and, and Simon spoke to me previously about some of these things he picked up on. Um, so this book originally appeared in 1980 and was first printed in German, uh, which um, at least we picked up on that. I don't know if it's true, but uh, some of the, uh, the the wording seems a bit weird to an English reader. Uh, it doesn't sort of fit um, a typical sort of English style. And this is perhaps why. Uh, interesting as well, um, the actual framework of charismatic leadership, charismatic authority, uh, which is so intimately connected with this publication was only introduced with, uh, I believe the later English edition, which is quite interesting to, to note. Um, also, it didn't originally include the final section dealing with the Holocaust, which is again, quite a key element of this book. Uh, and then finally, this was one of the original sources of criticism of the book, 
was that it was primarily dealing with uh, Bavarian uh, primary sources. Uh, and this was largely a consequence of the fact that uh, Ian Kershaw happened to be tenured um, at a university in Bavaria at the time that he produced this work. Um, so those are all of the things, uh, the preamble I wanted to get out of the way. Um, so I, 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 again, I, I did write up fairly lengthy notes this time, so yay me. Um, so I think if, uh, in terms of like trying to discuss this book, I think there's sort of three sort of key elements uh, to this. Uh, firstly, uh, so, so, so the sort of questions that I, I, I think are sort of key to this book are firstly, um, how did Hitler solidify uh, his position within the general population? And especially the case because, well, firstly, uh, the Nazi party never um, achieved a majority vote share through any sort of legitimate democratic process. Uh, and Hitler himself was never democratically elected to the position of a chancellor that he initially took on. Uh, secondly, um, and this is kind of one of the key elements that is um, sort of that, that the framework actually sort of helps to address is what role can actually be assigned to the general population to the development over this period of time. And also finally, um, sort of how and why did Hitler's popularity change over time and what impact um, did this have on the overall methodology? Um, so those are the questions I want to address. I don't know if you want to address any yourself particularly. No, I don't think so. I think that um, that sums up the, the main points that the book was exploring really well. The, the key question was really about how Hitler managed to uh, solidify his position among the general population, because he, he kind of very quickly seemed to establish this, like you were saying earlier, almost like quasi-religious um, aura around him that apparently kept him loved and admired by, by the German people pretty much up until 1942. And this was in, in contrast to the rest of the Nazi party who actually held in, in contempt in a lot of places in Germany, at least on the local level. So I think that's, that is one of the, like the, the key question that the book poses. I don't really have anything else to, to add. I mean, I, I thought that yeah, there was, fine. sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. yeah, anything else? That's no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I thought that, I mean, I think we'll, we'll probably get into it a little bit more, but I thought that there were some problems with the book in terms of like the fact that he never really defined what he meant by Hitler myth. And it kind of seems to change definition throughout the book. Um, it's not until the concluding chapter that he gets to like categorize what he termed the seven different elements that made up the Hitler myth. And one of them was a kind of broader readiness of the German people to, to look for a kind of a, a savior figure um, in a kind of almost King Arthur sense of, of this like mythical hero that, that comes and, and renews the nation. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know how convinced I was by by his argument that this was that Hitler embodied this kind of myth for for so many people, given that a lot of the evidence that he cites 
um, from the interviews with the general population seem to really only be concerned about economic issues and domestic policy um, rather than this kind of larger sense of mission or purpose. So I don't know, I thought that there were some, there were some questions that the book posed that, that, were, that were unanswered, I suppose, by the end of the, uh, by, my, by the time that I finished reading it. <clears throat> yeah, I think I, I just, yeah, um, I think I probably had a similar experience to you because I went into this book thinking, you know, um, it, it, it's going to be fairly straightforward. I mean, I don't want to sort of be glib about it, but like, it's not going to be like something that's going to be particularly like uh, head scratching. But I, 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 the more I read this book, the more confused I became because I thought, oh, maybe I'm I'm missing something because it feels like, um, especially the later section when he talks about the breaking of the myth it's like well like surely this applies to literally every leader in history um and i i think on on sort of a, a part read through i think it's not so much about um you know the fact that you need some sort of element of positive reinforcement to sort of justify your like leadership or authority but it's it's much more about how how sort of various elements of like policy and stuff as sort of related to that person so that the fact that it seems distinctive of this leadership style or sort of uh, category of leadership that it's specifically related in sort of a divine sort of quasi-religious sense uh, rather than through any sort of other sort of uh, uh, like bureaucratic sense or legit uh, other sort of legal legal sort of sense, and I think that that's the only way I can really understand it. To be honest with, you. yeah, no, I I agree. I think that's what because I, I, I if I remember correctly, the other two kind of elements in Max Weber's kind of model of authority, um, or the the um the origins of of um, of various types of, of legal authority were uh, inherited, i.e. kind of like in a monarchic sense, uh, elected um, or legal, uh, and then the charismatic authority. Um, but I just, I, I found it a little bit tenuous. I thought the, the first chapter where he was talking about the, the um, basis for this kind of charismatic, uh, authority figure to arise in Germany, uh, linking back to, I, th I think he went back as far as the, the German War of Liberation in 1813, uh, and this idea that like a heroic leader would emerge from the people. Um, and then that building on that, he kind of listed various people from Bismarck and Wilhelm II the, the to Hitler eventually, who had this kind of mantle placed on them um, in the popular imagination. I just didn't really, I didn't buy it that much. I mean, I, I think that you could say that about pretty much any culture, any people, every, every society has its kind of myths and legends and heroic individuals or, or people that are associated with great deeds of the past. And especially going back to kind of, you know, the, the early, 20th century, 
um, with, you know, a lot of Imperial Victorian era kind of mindset still very much alive in, ma in many people's minds. I think that you could say that about pretty much any country in Europe was by that definition poised to accept like this notion of a, a savior come to come among the people to, to uh, bring them to, to greatness or whatever. I think maybe I think you're right that it's 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 more about the implementation and the how easily people ascribed that um, policies of con their contemporary leaders to this this myth. And maybe it was maybe it was more common in, in Germany because they just had more of the of a tradition of, of looking for for that kind of guidance. But I, I didn't find it that convincing. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's difficult with this um, this kind of book. Um, you know, you, you can't really sort of. I mean, it's just the nature of history, right? You you can't really deal with anything other than what are historic facts, right? Um, but I guess because because I, I was trying to think like what um, a, a similar sort of leader might look like, and I, I sort of came an example with Churchill because. You know, similarly, although through a very different process, he wasn't democratically elected when he first took took office as, as prime minister. Um, and, and I suppose it would be more sort of to contrast, compare, like how um, he was related to in the sort of general public, and uh, you know how his. Um, what sort of policy decisions, like how they were sort of connected to him as an individual versus, say, uh, the, the government or party. Um, but I, I don't think that would really help illuminate this all that much. I, I, I think it's much more about like just the fact that Hitler was seen, was so often wrote about in, in, in this sort of quasi-religious way, both by the official parties propaganda and also through you know we see you know people talking about how they were like shots to have touched hands with this person or like how like uh, artifacts they received from him were like built with this like holy relics and um and so i i would say like the first part of this book is the, the most strong element um it, it when he discusses how it's sort of built up as as a mythology yeah, I, I think <clears throat> I I did I, I think that once he got into the kind of early um development of the Hitler myth, I think it 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 was very strong because he I think because the the sources that he was using he was using were slightly more varied, but also um they seemed to me to be a bit more honest because there wasn't the fear of, of um, censorship or, or of oppression if, if people spoke out. So um, I think was a kind of weakness in, in, in some of the quotes and reports that he used further, further into the book. Um, and I, I found it most interesting, the most interesting part, because I, there were a few things that I didn't know about that period um, and about the development of the Nazi party and the development of the of Hitler and his involvement with it um, and particularly I didn't I didn't realize that they 
the Nazis generally, but Hitler personally looked to Ludendorff, the, the quartermaster general from the First World War, as the kind of future embodiment of the, the leader that they were going to bring to, to power and who was going to save Germany. And it was only later in the 1920s, after Hitler had been imprisoned, that um, he started to build this self-image as um, the leader himself. Uh, yeah, I, I found that very interesting um, because I just always assumed that he he had this kind of megalomaniacal streak that he believed himself to be, you know, chosen by fate. Um, and it, it, it kind of came later on. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was something that, that really struck at, stuck me early on in the book. Yeah, I, I don't think I uh, appreciated um, that the, the role that the North was perceived to play in any sort of future National Socialist government. But um, yeah, it's very clear in the biography, Ian Kershaw's biography of Hitler that I remember um, that it, it, it's really during um, the, the trial that follows the failed Beer Hall Putsch that uh, Hitler uh, is given a platform to sort of really sort of promote himself as a, a leader. And I, I think it, if I remember correctly, it, it's, it's kind of, at the time it's sort of seen as being like him taking one for the team, but it's actually sort of spun out into this, like, you know, I'm not just this weird eccentric rebel within this party, I'm actually the leader. Um, and that's something that he sort of runs with, uh, you know, from the, the late 20s onwards. Um, and uh, yeah, it was quite, quite interesting, actually, I, not in this book, but I was just reading another book um, about, um, uh, German history in general, but um, just how uh, that, that there was quite a deliberate policy to um, push forward Hitler as like the primary focus as separate to the party. Um, and in fact, even during the late 20s, early 30s, on the voting slips, uh, quite distinct from any other political party, they would highlight it as belonging to Hitler. They use the term Hitler the vegan, uh, Hitler's movement. Um, you may know the words the vegan from the vegan's creek uh, from Alfredius podcast. <laughs> um, so this is why you should listen to the old ones. Um, but yeah, so that's quite interesting. It's very much uh, the point of focus. Um, and this kind of has the, 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 the sort of the joint elements of uh, both uh, promoting Hitler as separate from this wider sort of uh, democratic process that people are quite disillusioned with. Um, and also um, uh, sort of trying to satisfy this, this appetite for this heroic leader that at least Ian Kershaw seems to think is, is quite indicative of, of uh, Germany during this period of time as well. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he makes a point quite well, I think, about the just how disillusioned people were with uh, the Weimar Republic um towards the end of the 20s and the early 30s um <clears throat> how kind of totally the the system had had broken down um and hitler as a kind of leader was 
seen to be a kind of unifying factor because he he kind of seemed to mesh parties and 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 bring together people from different political camps um so that was an essential kind of early element of 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 the hitler myth as well that that Kershaw talks about which is you know hitler's ability to rise above the party politics of um of the late 20s and the early 30s and to present himself as uh this kind of pure figure who was untouched by the you know the corruption and the venality of um um the political system and it's something that he kind of seemed to get away with throughout most of the 30s as well where he his reputation seemed to develop a life of its own that was completely detached from people's uh experience of the day-to-day lives and day-to-day experience of of the nazi party people were very happy by the the sounds of it from from a lot of the the examples that um kershaw quotes people were really um quite comfortable blaming the nazis for for various uh injustices or uh problems in the in their localities but there would seem to be this kind of belief that hitler uh was surrounded by bad counselors or wasn't being told everything that was going on and there was somehow he was unaware of of how bad things were and therefore when he found out he would um step in and stop it and this was almost kind of um this played into his involvement in the night of long knives in 1934 where he basically just uh executed under or had executed under his orders um somewhere between i think he says it was somewhere between 30 and 200 um members of the sa so kind of old nazi party affiliates uh who were grown to uh disruptive in society they were just murdered and hitler stood up in the reichstag and admitted that he ordered these killings and yet people seemed to to take that as a sign that he as confirmation that he wasn't aware of the extent of uh the trouble before and that having become aware of it he acted and and sorted the problem solved it which i, I found fascinating and, and quite disturbing as well yeah it's, it's not um because that that um what, what would you call like that refrain i guess that is often used in the book of that you know if only hitler knew or if only hitler had better counsel uh you know this wouldn't be a problem that seems to be fairly consistent up until like 1943 really um when you know there's the disaster at stalingrad and, and everything else from that point in time and uh, yeah that was quite interesting um well it doesn't doesn't really i suppose i suppose it's just the element of the smith but yeah, like you say, like with the nice long lives, it, it seems like there's basically up to, you know, I want to say around 1938, 1939, uh, generally speaking, Hitler is acting on uh, generally quite popular domestic and international policy as a whole. Um, and either that's things that have 
had uh, a long-standing like uh, the Versailles uh, Treaty or, or the general sort of concern around Marxism and Bolshevism um, or like the Night of Long Knives where it's something that sort of emerges as, as a result of his um, the, the, his uh, assumption of power um, and so everything up to that point is generally sort of has pre-existing popular support um, for these initiatives and um, it, it seems like there's a very deliberate effort to uh, uh, deliberately uh, direct uh, directly link this to Hitler as a person rather than the party as a whole um, just to sort of shore up this this image and feed into this mythology um, and it, it's only much later where uh, well, I, I suppose it's really basically from 1938 to, to 41 where um, his taking on uh, decisions or policies that don't generally have um, popular support, but the support is there precisely because of this faith in Hitler and not necessarily to um, uh, resolve it um, or, or not simplest, simplest, simply to resolve it successfully, but also to resolve it in a fairly short time frame as well. Um, and uh, it, it's only because of this belief that he seems to be able to um, maintain generally high support th throughout the spirit of like basically the first few years of the, the active war. Um, and it, it's sort of driven this period that you know, Kershaw seems to suggest that his popularity reached a high point just immediately following the fall of France and uh, June of 1940. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if you have anything else to say about that. Yeah, I think I, I, I think you're right. He um, <clears throat> he highlights the fall of France as a kind of like the the high point of of the Hitler myth when. I think, as he puts it, the final kind of piece of the Hitler myth fell into place, which was the idea of Hitler as some kind of military genius, um, because he had succeeded where um, staff officers from, you know, uh, from the the Schefflin plan uh, onwards had uh, had failed to say conquer France. He'd he'd made that happen, uh, even though, as we discovered. From reading the German Way of War, um, which was the first book that we reviewed on this on this uh, channel, um, that the actual kind of campaign-winning decision was not taken by Hitler or the high command of the army, but rather one of the um, <clears throat> army corps commanders who decided to to move through uh, rough terrain to to outmaneuver the French and therefore managed to, to deliver the, the blow. But initially his Hitler's plan was pretty much a repeat of the, the Schifflin plan. So despite the fact that, and this is the other, the other thing that Kershaw points out quite often is that Hitler's myth stood in kind of direct um, opposition to reality at many points in during the thirties and the forties where, you know, for example, he gained a reputation for economic um, policy early in the 1930s but a lot of that was due to the 
worst effects of the, the Great Depression having passed, and also building programs and policies that have been voted to the right scar, right start, right stag. <clears throat> prior to him taking power. So he kind of benefited politically from that, despite not having actually come up with the, the policy himself. And similarly, when he um, began to annex the, the kind of the German lands um, in Austria and, uh, and further afield, and claim those or reclaim those for, for Germany, he had not necessarily intended those, those maneuvers to be made peacefully, um, especially not the invasion of, of Czechoslovakia. Um, and the, the fact that <clears throat> a war didn't break out was kind of seen by the German people or interpreted by them seemingly as proof that he was some kind of diplomatic genius, but in actual fact, he had, he had wanted the outcome to be war, at least in the case of, of the invasion of Czechoslovakia. So it, it found it quite strange that there was such a, a, a gap of understanding between the, um, his, his actual policy and, and the, the public perception of him. <clears throat> but like you were saying, this kind of re reached its apogee in 1940 with the invasion of France. And then gradually we kind of became, um, began to slide away in large part because the belief in the Hitler myth was tied to this idea that the war would be won quickly and peace would be declared soon afterwards. <clears throat> and as it became apparent that the fighting was going on and that the war was going to draw on longer and longer. People started to question whether he was um, actually the, the genius and the, uh, the, the, the paragon of virtue that they believed him to be. Yeah, that, 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 that's true. And it's also on that point of, because um, I think um, but one of the interesting uh, sort of unintended consequences of the relatively quick and also peaceful resolution of, say, um, the Munich Conference, and then also um, the, the later invasion of uh, Czechoslovakia, is that um, it, it sort of uh, leads the general populace to understand that sort of any such future crisis would be resolved in a, in, in a similar way as well. Um, which, I mean, obviously isn't true, but it, it perhaps leads them to sort of a false sense of security in, in the later crises that develop as well. Um, yeah, so, so how like the Hitler myth sort of breaking once it becomes clear that these won't resolve. I wonder if another element of that is also because he kind of, kind of sort of paints himself in the corner a little bit because, um, you know, by the turn of 1942, um, he has also taken the position as the chief of staff of the German uh, military. And so there isn't kind of this um, previous dynamic where that, you know, Hitler is perhaps to a certain extent aloof of these day-to-day -day details. 
um, and that there is no sort of uh, second commands to which he can sort of really assign blame. Um, so, so maybe that's an element of like the myth breaking as well. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think he makes reference to Hitler's culpability for um, the German Sixth Army's defeat in the siege of Stalingrad as um, being a, a real turning point where people started to um, started to become disillusioned with him because he had had direct control and he'd ordered this attack and it had failed. <clears throat> yeah, and, and also even within the um, the military class as well because um, the the you know the the disaster at uh, Stalingrad is is what kicks off. Um, the, the various uh, conspiracies that culminates in the July uh, assassination attempt in July 1944. Um, so I, I, th I mean, that's one of the key elements. I, mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, like many people have said it's a, a turning point within the war, but it also seems to be a sort of a fundamental sort of um, like uh, change in how people perceive his, his leadership as well. I suppose the interesting point is just how um, like the day-to-day -day life, it, it, there's so much disillusion in, in the general sort of political situation. Uh, and yet this is held quite separately to the sort of belief in, in Hitler as a whole. Um, and I, I suppose that's quite quite interesting. And it does lead to this, um, this pattern that we see develop over time where uh, initially it was like these sort of great acts or great achievements that are sort of linked to Hitler, which feed into this myth, and yet it's sort of later on, uh, once the war sort of uh, goes against them, or at least from 1941 onwards, um, it's sort of that that dynamic sort of flips a bit, where it's this pre-existing myth that feeds its belief in the uh, successful conclusion of these great hacks. I, I think that's fair to say as well. Yeah, I think you're right. There was a kind of... <clears throat> I suppose there was a, almost a, a, a reserve of, of faith in, in him uh, after the initial successes began to falter and, and, and go into a hole. There was still the, the residual belief that he would find a way and pull through. And it gradually, only, only very gradually, kind of began to, to slide away. And... Uh, I think Herschel makes the point quite well in the conclusion of the book that as the uh, public belief in Hitler <clears throat> and the public perception of the Hitler myth began to crumble, the state um, coercion uh, of, of people and the uh, activities of the secret police and the 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 coercive element of of the nazi regime became the stronger factor in keeping people um loyal and in line i mean he he makes a point in in one of the the later chapters of the book about a shopkeeper who um complained about uh the length of the war and the bombings that, that Germany was suffering, um, 
who was denounced by one of his customers and, and shot um, for, for just having voiced this, this little disillusionment with the system. So obviously, <clears throat> as belief in Hitler started to decline, there was a kind of ramping up of the, of the um, I suppose, terror campaign of the Gestapo to, to try to keep the system from, from collapsing entirely. Yeah, and, and like uh, the other side of it is that um, at least like d d during the sort of mid to late thirties, um, the uh, pub public displays of um, support for for Hitler and sort of the, the Nazi ideology in general were quite um, uh, were quite what's 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 um, uh, whereas much later on they, they had to be quite, as you say, like quite strongly co coerced. And then by the end of, you know, by 1945, there's, you know, reports of even coercion not really leading to any positive outcome. I think that's everything about that point for me, at least. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know. I'd just like to also mention the significance of the bombing campaign that the Allies um, perpetrated against against Germany during the, the Second World War, which um, I mean, certainly after reading this book, before reading this book, rather, I, I hadn't appreciated how total that that bombing campaign was, that the British and Americans kind of committed to a around the clock bombing schedule where the, the British would, would bomb during the night and the Americans would bomb during the day. But it really did have a massive impact on people's perception of, of Hitler. Um, the fact that he was unable to prevent these allied powers from, from destroying German cities was seen as a massive blow to his credibility and his standing. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one because it's like, um, it, it's a very sort of unclear picture, at least from my, my reading of different, uh, that, you know, materials on this on this subject. It's like on, on paper, it doesn't seem to do much to dent the war economy, or at least not until right near the end. Um, but it does seem to have this overall like cumulative effect of um, uh, delegitimizing um, the, the Nazi party um, and you know Hitler by an extension. But in terms of maybe sort of practical sense, it, I mean, because this is a problem with the whole like uh, strategic bombing campaign is that that even if there was some initial success in like destroying a, a, a key like city center, it's and it, it, like subsequent bombing campaigns would, would not be anything near as effective. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that's an interesting point. So, so that, I mean, the next point was just about uh, that the role, what's the sort of to what extent you, you, we can assign like uh, a role to the general population and the development of 
policy and, and how it was sort of publicized in this period of time. Um, so I, mean, I would say like going back to like one of my earlier sort of preamble about, um, I mean, the whole sort of one of the key elements of this book is to try to say that public, the public in general did have a, a part to play, um, even if it was like an indirect way as well. Um, I have some examples. I don't know if you wanted to talk about them. I think it's a to begin with. Uh, yeah, I, I guess um, in terms of the the German, the wider German public colluding with and, and becoming part of the the Hitler myth, I thought that the most kind of striking examples were uh, Hindenburg and the the kind of bourgeois elite who. Kershaw suggests believed that they could uh, use Hitler as a, a kind of convenient rallying point um, to shore up faith in the government while they actually uh, then implemented their own changes and, and, and uh, grew their own power base. And in actual fact, they ended up being kind of gravely mistaken about uh, how easy uh easily controlled Hitler would be um but yeah I thought that was a, a really a kind of fascinating point because I, I I had never really understood um and uh, to a certain extent I still don't understand the uh, mechanism by which he became leader I know that the the book references something like five separate elections in 1930 and at the end of which Hitler was kind of although he never secured a majority of the popular vote, was the <clears throat> um, candidate with the largest vote share for chancellor. Um, but I'd kind of always been unclear on how that then translated to him becoming a dictator as totally as he did in as short a time as he did. And the fact that the, the ruling parties and the um, you know, at the highest level of German society, colluded with that and and um, placed him in that position of power was it was uh, uh, quite shocking. I thought. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, I mean, I wasn't thinking about that specifically, but yeah, that that's that's fair enough because um, I mean, he's he is an astute enough politician to sort of know, you know, when to to play to a certain audience and. I mean, that's quite interesting because he did quite quickly develop a relationship with these industrialists and with these uh, political powers. And it was one of the, like the original 25 points of the, the National Socialist Party that he joins, uh, which was published in uh, Mein Kampf among other places where it was a source of embarrassment as well, because, um, they, they cut more along the lines of sort of uh, sort of more socialist um, agenda as well, which is is not really what they were about at all. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that, I mean that's an interesting element as well. I mean, I, I was thinking more in terms of um, how he he's kind of is able to 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 read the uh, general interest in some of the elements. So like. So one of the key things, and then what is discussed more more at length in the, in the third section of this book is 
uh, Hitler's uh, anti-Semitism, which uh, seems to be quite like uniquely a uniquely uh, strong characteristic of his uh, politics among even sort of right-wing parties as well. And it, it you get the sense, at least in this book, that, that there's quite a deliberate effort to uh, play this down until they're in a position to sort of enact this policy. Um, because, he, because he quite, or at least the party seems to quite quickly come to the, uh, come to understand and appreciate that anti-Semitism is, is not really going to bring people towards them. And that's really um, their more sort of general concern around Marxism and Bolshevism, which is uh, sort of playing to their strengths. Um, but we also see this in, in various other elements. So like the general sort of following policy goals are sort of generally played down a little bit because we kind of sort of picked up on this beforehand, but there isn't really an appetite for sort of uh, uh, a widespread conflict, uh, especially given the outcome of the First World War. Um, and there, there's quite a deliberate effort to, um, well, actually, actually, it seems like it, it seems to a certain extent quite accidental that um, th there's this effort to sort of avoid an open conflict and sort of resolve things uh, politically um, to, to a certain extent. I mean, because uh, this leads to when they remilitarize the, 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 the Rhine region, um, that there's quite a lot of anxiety and it's only once it becomes clear that foreign, uh, that no other foreign powers will sort of step in, um, that this is celebrated as the, the, a great achievement. Um, and then also, a bit later on, there's like this element of the uh, the reversal of the euthanasia policy in, in 1941, which again is is uh, much more deliberately uh, a much more deliberate effort to sort of engage with uh, popular mood at the time. And I suppose the point in all of this is that, um, despite the fact that uh, you know obviously this is a dictatorship, it's it's you know not people are quite heavily uh, corolled into acting a certain way, there's quite heavy censorship, um, that there is still an ability for the public to uh, imprint on the party, you know, that, that their own sort of wishes and sort of how that influences policy is, is quite uh, quite stark and also quite noticeable throughout um, the 30s and also the war as well. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And also, um... <clears throat> the chapter that Kershaw wrote regarding the, the church struggle in the 1930s was also quite a good illustrating point of that, I think, as well, where especially um, at the local level, elements of the Nazi party have been really uh, strongly associated with anti-Christian and anti-church sentiment. Um, and Hitler was aware of the, the emotional attachment that a lot of German people, particularly in Catholic regions like Bavaria, had to, to the church. And he tailored his um, speeches and he tailored his image to appeal to that, uh, to those sensibilities and also to, to try to 
present this this image of him as being uh, distanced from the anti-Christian elements of the Nazi party. Um, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. I I guess that it's it's interesting now, like hearing you talk about the role that public sentiment played in the shaping of Nazi policy, because I kind of it makes a lot of sense in in hindsight. At reading reading through the book, I mean, a huge portion of the of the book is is taken up with quotes drawn from uh, SD reports, which were like the regional Nazi party um, officers who would interview members of the public uh, or sometimes just kind of walk down the street and ask them questions about, you know, did you hear Hitler's speech yesterday? What did you think of it? Um, and they'd, you know, make very detailed reports about the responses and then send them through to, uh, to headquarters to be analysed. So they were in a really good position to to judge the popular mood at any given any given point but not until you said that had i had i kind of made that connection that they used those those reports to shape their policy um yeah yeah it's also just i mean it occurs to me it, it does also seem like like it, it's fairly consistent as well with this picture because like um, a lot of other sort of documentary stuff like that they, they constantly talk about how there was almost like this obsession with maintaining the conditions of the home front even during the active conflicts and so you think well like you know given that's the case you know it's probably fair to assume that there was quite a lot of emphasis placed on uh public perception um because i mean at the end of the day like hitler was you know one of the first politicians that made you know very effective use of modern mass media right you know like there's this big thing about you know him flying all over germany there's him being on the radio uh, all the time and you know making the most of these technologies to be a presence in people's lives so yeah yeah i, I suppose it, it, it's not really a surprise that he would be receptive of public opinion even once in power yeah, I found that really interesting that he was the first ever politician to use uh, planes in in his campaigns. Uh, uh, strange, and I have to say, like, <clears throat> throughout reading the book, particularly the first half of it, where it was talking about the rise of the Hitler myth and his kind of popularity increasing steadily in the 20s and 30s, it was striking how modern, in many ways, his approach to politics was. Yeah, I, I suppose that I, a question that that came to to mind while reading the stuff about the the night of long knives and the um, uh, kind of uh, purging of the party of those those elements of, of of it was the extent to which popular opinion played into the decision to do that. Like, as you say, Hitler was very aware of his his public perception, and presumably he wouldn't have ordered the execution of those people unless he felt that he could get away with it. Um, I, it was something that struck me, uh, particularly on the chapter in anti-Semitism, the, the, the kind of 
extent to which people were willing to look the other way as long as they felt that something good was happening. Um, so, you know, he, he developed this reputation very early in his um, chancellorship um, of, of being working, you know, an economic miracle. And people kind of focused on that and were willing to, to just go along with the anti-Semitic um, laws that were starting to be, you know, creep their way into, into German society, even though from the chapter that deals with it, it seems as though the majority of the population didn't agree with those laws. There was still no kind of significant backlash, or not significant enough that it, it, it really had any effect other than to, to maybe make the Nazis and Hitler tread more carefully and kind of go slower than they, they may have wanted to. But yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of strange, kind of shocking, the, the extent to which people were from, from a lot of different walks of life were willing to kind of let things happen as long as their own particular interests were being served or addressed at the time. I think I could um, characterize this as like the, you know, the, the, the path to the Holocaust was just, just uh, you know, characterized by indifference rather than anything else, which I mean, is still quite shocking, but um, it's perhaps a different uh, picture that you would have, you know, coming out from the other side, I suppose. So the other thing that I wanted to, to talk about with regard to the popular uh, perception of, of Hitler and the, the role of people in shaping the Hitler myth was um, the, the generally quite shocking chapter at the end, the conclusion, where um, Kershaw says that according to various um, public polls that were conducted in, in Western Germany after the end of the war, Hitler was still seen as quite a positive figure until the kind of mid sixties, um, and like even even throughout the the fifties, he was consistently voted as one of the most successful German leaders. And there was this kind of tendency to say, like, the first ten years were good, and had it not been for the war, he would have been okay. Yeah, I found that really, really strange. And it wasn't until the kind of German or West German economic recovery in the mid 60s that the popular perception of him really started to um, assume a more kind of modern quality and, and, and start to really, you know, the, the, the Hitler myth started to kind of really crumble in the, in the, in the minds of a lot of, of the German people. It's very, very strange. Yeah, that's something I picked up on a, a bit as well. I'm not so sure if that's like, if those were people that sort of lived during that period so much as it was sort of people coming to that because there's also a bit later as, as well there was that period of it's not in this book but it, it, it's that, that period of more recent German history like known as the Hitler wave where there was like a renewed interest in all things Hitler and not necessarily a particularly sort of um, nuanced view either um and uh, yeah, I, I don't want, don't really know what the driving factor is. I think, unfortunately, it's just an element of nostalgia 
kind of it, it doesn't necessarily work to the, the best of humanity yeah i guess so i mean he did I, I think he did say one of the at least one of the interviews from the 1950s said that you know they they wished things had been be you know were like they were in the 30s again um so i guess there was an element of nostalgia and an element of kind of maybe wishing away the the war and and, and all of the the destruction and, and death that, that occurred um but yeah i i i found that very surprising because i had always assumed that uh hitler's public image or public perception after the war um had just totally collapsed. I mean, there were people even during the kind of very, very last months of the of the war who predicted that he was gonna he was gonna kill himself, and the the and the result that uh, that Germany was defeated, and there was a lot of distrust around him, kind of like having any motivation to 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 end the war early or peacefully because um he personally would be so perception of him during his lifetime would have been the one that had stuck and, and carried on into the into the like mid and later 20th century but yeah it was, it was strange yeah that kind of also kind of brings us nicely to the final point uh like the, the various elements and the factors that led, led to Hitler's popularity changing over time and to the extent that this impacted the mythology as well. Um, so I, th I think this would sort of fly this up before, like, I don't think either of us thought that the last part or last half almost of the book was, was the best. Uh, it was quite repetitive and also didn't really sort of seem to be enriched in any way by this this use of the charismatic authority model um it feels like you could kind of discuss any sort of leadership in in similar terms i mean but the general idea is basically that you know once the worm that once the war sort of turns against the germans it's like this is basically from the end of 1941 Hitler's popularity begins to sag, and it's not just that people complain in a very sort of quite direct sense of like, oh, this bad thing happened, ergo Hitler's bad, uh, but also that this uh, previously established sort of belief that no matter what happens, Hitler was able to uh, resolve this in a sort of quick and favorable way um, begins to sort of falter as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be a, a pretty fair characterization that, that there are some kind of interesting points throughout this period. Like, I mean, you've, you already mentioned that there was some sort of nostalgic belief after the war and, and sort of a leader like Hitler sort of being able to lead Germany, but also, you know, so, so certain, certain sort of events. Uh, so for instance, the failed assassination attempts Although there are sort of some comments that indicate that people would be quite happy to see the end of Hitler, and that there's quite a um, a clear understanding that uh, if Hitler was out of the picture, that the war could come to an end much more quickly. Uh, there is still this sort of um, that there is this undercurrent of uh, well wishing towards the Hitler 
if not the Nazi uh, party as a whole. And I suppose that was the interesting element of the, the breaking of the myth is that previously there, there was this quite uh, conscious or unconscious sort of separation between Hitler and the Nazi party as a whole. Whereas once uh, things start to break down, um, there's not quite the separation and they're kind of seen as like one and the same thing. Uh, that That's something I certainly picked up on. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. I think that that was a, a, a key theme of the the second half of the book. And actually something that has just struck me as well. Um, it, I wonder to, to what extent the um, disparity between, or, or rather the, the breakdown of the Hitler myth in the German perception during the last kind of couple of years of the war, was due to the disparity between Hitler and the people in the in the public perception. So, I mean, Kershaw makes the point that as the war started to go badly, Hitler became less visible. He made less public speeches. He appeared in in newspaper articles less regularly, and he started to have less of a almost personal connection with people that had characterized his his um, career in the 30s um, and it had given some people something really to a figure to get behind. And Kershaw makes a point that, you know, one of the elements of the, the Hitler myth was that he was seen as a unifying figure in Germany. And once he stopped being that unifying figure in people's minds, an element of doubt crept in that maybe he wasn't acting in the best interests of, of the people. Maybe it was it was for his own sake that he was doing this. And I think that was kind of possibly echoed in the in the ideas of uh, of of people that he was going to commit suicide in the event of um, an Allied victory. Uh, I think Kershaw quotes at least one and possibly two interviews where people say, oh, you know, he'll he'll get away with it because he'll just put a bullet to his head and, and we'll have to deal with the consequences. So I think that, uh, you know, it, it just struck me just as you were, as you were talking, I wonder if that was also an element of, of the breaking of trust. He was talking yeah. about things like self-sacrifice, like the heroic sacrifice of the, the army in front of um, Stalingrad, but people didn't want that message. They couldn't get behind that, that idea he was appealing to a kind of narrower and narrower base of, 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 of people. Yeah, one element uh, that he's not, he's not able, yes, he's not able to make that connection. Um, yeah, I suppose, so, so, so one thing I picked up on my talking as well, so like, that there's this argument, at, like, so Ian Kirscher basically says that over time sort of Hitler comes to believe in this myth, mythology around him. And at least in the sort of reader that I read separate to this, uh, some people have sort of criticized this point that, that you know Hitler wasn't didn't just become aware of this being a thing. It was it was always the case, and I, I think this is one of those things that is like partly just terminology definition. You know, it's quite difficult to know what is meant by myth and understanding of this. But it's like you know, going to what you're saying, like you know, if Hitler was truly aware of this myth and like the implications of this myth, 
would he have just stepped away once things were sort of turning against him in this way? Like when you said like, oh, you know, I know this myth, what, what, I mean, probably not, I wouldn't say this, but I said, you know, I'm all about this myth, right? You know, I know what goes into it. Therefore, I'm going to do my utmost to sort of maintain it as much as possible. Um, you, th you think maybe if there was uh, a self-awareness around this mythology, then maybe um, he wouldn't have stepped back quite so much, um, that there would be more of an effort to, to sort of keep up appearances, so to speak. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think that that was that was a really interesting element of the book i thought that would have that was a really uh interesting element of the book that i wished he'd delved into more which was that the extent to which hitler became a victim of his own myth um and i i think it it actually makes a lot of sense in explaining his behavior towards the the latter half of the war and even leading up to the Second World War as well, but particularly after it started to go wrong, um, <clears throat> he seemed to just kind of lose the sense of detachment from, it seems to be a feature of, of um, associated with, with dictatorial leaders, like Napoleon was also said to have, have you know, partly Thought about his own downfall because he he's, he started to believe himself to be this this man of destiny and, and unable to be defeated, which led him to make mistakes. Um, and the the same I think was was true for Hitler. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. But like, I guess like what I'm a bit confused about is like to the extent that. Um, this myth can be understood simply in terms of because it, it seems like the more you more you talk about like someone like Hitler like falling victim to it, it becomes more just a question of like self-belief versus like this like complex element that sort of sits separate to like any one individual. Um so I suppose it's it's more like you know whether or not the, the myth is particular to one individual versus like it's this weird sort of like social contract. I, I don't know what you call it, like a, a, a norm or whatever, like that that is kind of uh, agreed upon by like, you know, a leader figure and like the general populace and like some other party elements. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I'm not too sure um, if it's it's the best way to understand like this increasing hubris that Hitler seems to have. Um, I, I think there are sort of easier ways to sort of understand it. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think it's an interesting thing to think about, though. Like earlier at the, at the beginning of the episode, you were talking about uh, Kershaw's kind of theory of working towards the Fuhrer, where his underlings, uh, because of the scope he gave them for independent action started to kind of try to anticipate his wishes and so the pace of of um the nazi program moved very rapidly uh because all of these people were were trying to imagine what he wanted and and, and deliver that for him 
I wonder if the same thing happened to a certain extent in his mythologizing of, of himself, because, you know, I mean, Kershaw makes the point quite often that a lot of the um, opinion reports that were produced, especially as Hitler's own uh, popularity started to decline, were either the result of kind of coercion and people's fear of being denounced for speaking out against him. So they spoke more positively of him than they, than they actually thought. But also a, a lot of the reports would have been the product of doctoring by his party members, his staff that were responsible for putting these, these together because they didn't want to get into trouble. So they presented the most rosy picture of the situation. So the information that he got became increasingly unreliable as time went on, um, which almost created a vicious cycle where he he's maybe was reading positive things and believing that he was doing the right thing, but was actually doing the wrong thing. And it was just reinforcing this vicious cycle of, of disillusionment on the on the side of the German people and kind of reinforcing belief in himself on on Hitler's side. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's interesting because then, then it sort of takes on um, a much greater importance if you then consider that uh, there, there was this element of uh, reactivity to public opinion. So I guess if that feedback loop is is what was it like adulterated in some way, then yeah, then then that would ultimately lead to um, a catastrophe. Yeah. Do you have any other things to talk about on this? I'd like to talk a little bit about the sources because okay. he, well, like like you mentioned right at the beginning, um, the majority of the book was, uh, well, the book was published in two volumes and, and we read the second volume, but the first printing of the book, um, first publication. Oh, the, the edition, not the volume. Oh, sorry. Yes, the first edition of the of the book um, in the early nineteen eighties focused almost entirely on Bavaria and and dealt with you know quite limited um, scope. And the second edition then expanded that a little bit, but as I still feel like it had a lot of weaknesses in the very heavy reliance on the SD reports, which were the um, the Nazi Party affiliates and and party workers reports into popular opinion and the Sopade reports which were the kind of uh, left-wing elements of the of the old Weimar Republic in exile in uh, in Austria first of all and then Paris and then London <clears throat> but these sources I think I felt became increasingly less useful as the period continues because the the amount of um, censorship and self censorship increased as people became more and more aware of um, the dangers of speaking out, and as the Nazi Party extended its grip into kind of every aspect of, of people's lives, it became more and more dangerous to to criticize. So, <clears throat> you know, he he says things like you know, the Nazi party plebiscite in 1936, Hitler scored like 99% approval rating. Um, 
and Kershaw admits that that's a ludicrous figure, but he still uses that ludicrous figure as a basis to say, oh, well, he must have had a high degree of popularity, but there's just no way to tell, really. Um, he admits himself that, that various regional kind of governments fudged the figures and produced popularity rating or, you know, produced retur vote returns in excess of the number of people that were living in the area. So there's there's no way to to really use that information reliably. And yes, he does admit that in the introduction, but I just I had a problem with with his reliance on those two sources as such important parts of of, of his argument throughout the book. Yeah, there, there, there's certainly an element of um, like what Ian Kershaw at least would have to like read between the lines, but there's kind of like uh, it very much depends on your perspective, like right, like what a 99% vote looks in, in indicates. Because um, he, he seems to say that, you know, even though it's inflated, that it would indicate a, a strong uh, support for this and that, but you know the high 90s sort of uh support is throughout the um the period when they're actually sort of engaging with public um uh, support as well um so yeah the, the, there is an element of it's not entirely clear how to interpret that i get i guess what despite the fact that perhaps it's the weakest sort of element of the book but in the closing chapters when uh, the actual sort of measures of popular support are in terms more in terms of um, sort of court martials or like trials or executions, that's probably a clearer indication of uh, general consensus. But yeah, I suppose, I suppose it's a hard one. Like he even goes on to, you know, to sort of use a thing of, of uh, concentration camp inmates as sort of indicative of um, uh, overall popular support, which is kind of like, yeah, not, not entirely sure. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense to use that as, as evidence to suggest that Hitler was actually popular. Yeah, I just, I, I felt that there was maybe too narrow a focus on, on the sources, too narrow a focus on, on using these, these kind of opinion polls and, and uh, um, popularity reports as, as the, the sources in, in the book. I mean, I, d I don't know how else you would approach a book like this, to, to be fair to the author. Um, you would have to, th there's got to be some way of, of accessing people's opinions about, about Hitler, and it would require sifting a little bit through evidence that is either like self-doctored or doctored later by um, you know, members of the Nazi party, but I felt that maybe he he overused those those things. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's fair to say, but I I, I don't think um, this kind of book it, it doesn't really sort of stand or falls on on the basis of um, this kind of evidence. It's it's much more a case of like how you uh, f frame like general sort of sentiment not not necessarily like an ex i mean yeah I, I don't think you're saying that at all but like um 
it, it, it doesn't really matter if there's like a strict scientific sort of uh, data to, to support this claim. It's much more about like, how do you frame the evidence that's available? Um, which I, again, I, I think it does a good job, especially within the early years um, of trying to sort of present uh, a unified framework for that. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think like, especially the early parts of the book, it he does really well on, on that. So um, uh, closing thoughts, unless you have anything else to say. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think closing thoughts was that um, I generally enjoyed it, although it was a little bit of a slog to get through. It's not the most easy book to read. Um, and I think, like you mentioned earlier, the fact that it's the first edition was translated from, from German probably um, was probably responsible for, for how difficult it is at, at certain points. But yeah, I, I liked the book. I would recommend it, but I think that um, to get the most out of it, you'd need to have read um, Kershaw's biography of Hitler first or a more general, have a more general understanding of, of um, the Nazi party and the 1930s in Germany. Yeah, I, I, I think I would probably say the same thing. I I mean, because this was my choice and I, the, the only reason I knew anything about this book is that I read uh, Ian Kershaw's biography of Hitler uh, beforehand. Um, and yeah, I, I would say I it was quite repetitive, especially uh, the last half. Um, Seems like it could be cut down, but it, it's kind of more more of the book that it's the quality is through the weight of evidence rather than the, the weight of like argument. Um, and it, you know, sort of relatedly, I think the the framework that he used um, was best to sort of really explain the initial popularity of the of the party once they were in power. Um, that that was the strongest element of the book. Um, yeah, so it's like if if I again I would probably something to Simon I, I would recommend this to someone that's perhaps more familiar with this period of time um, and is interested in a more sort of academic look. Uh, yes, yeah, so, and then sort of similarly, despite the fact that this is the shortest book we've read so far, it was probably the the most um, difficult to, to read. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I enjoyed it overall. It just um, took a bit of reading around to understand a little bit more what it was trying to say. So with that said, what are we reading next? Well, next uh, we're gonna go for uh, The Fall of the Ottomans, The Great War in the Middle East from 1914 to 1920 uh, by Eugene Rogan, um, which was my choice and kind of continuing on my, uh, focus of my interest more in the First World War, I thought it would be um, really interesting to, to delve a little bit more into the, the First World War in the Middle East, which is something that I, I know pretty much nothing about apart from the, the Gallipoli campaign. Um, so yeah, looking forward to it. I haven't started it yet, but um, I'm hoping to, to do so. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. Um, it seems like we're working our way through the Central Powers. Um... Uh, yeah, I, I, I did make a sound of it so far. I'm enjoying it. Um, it gets a thumbs up for being available as an ebook, thumbs down for not being available as an audiobook. 
Um, but I suppose that is a the opposite of the Hitler myth. So that, that's probably for the best. Thank you for listening. And I hope to um, back again for another dis discussion. Me too. Um, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye.